Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hi, everyone. Hope you are very well. It is Friday, November 13th, and it is almost comically late where we are. We've just been sort of busy and very distracted today, including because COVID is starting to appear in a very real way as we learn of more friends and acquaintances who are testing positive. I think Alex and I feel like we're probably marinating in this stuff at this point. We are feeling hale and hearty, but if either or both of us becomes indisposed by this for a while, you'll know it when you go to download the podcast and you hear this. You see, we'd be missing, so you'd be listening to this music. Anyway, on to the news of the week, and there is a bunch. DoorDash, the largest food delivery startup in the United States, released financial documents this morning as the company prepares to go public. What did these show? DoorDash was a clear winner of the pandemic. It reported revenue of $1.92 billion in the nine months through September. That's more than 200% higher than the $587 million it saw for the same period last year. The numbers also show that the company continues to lose money. Its net loss in the first nine months of this year was $149 million. That is a lot better than its net loss of $533 million a year earlier, but it does raise questions about its business model. We're not always going to be in a pandemic. And while many people will continue to rely heavily on the service, you have to assume that a healthy percentage of its current customers are going to find themselves back at restaurants when this is all over. In fairness, DoorDash has a plan for that. In a long letter, Tony Zhu, DoorDash's chief executive, outlined the company's plans to expand beyond food delivery into all local businesses. If we can make possible the delivery of ice cream before it melts, or pizza before it gets cold, or groceries in an hour, we can make the on-demand delivery of anything within a city a reality, he wrote. I hope for the company's sake that's true. Time will tell. As Connie reminded us at the top, COVID-19 continues to dominate the news. Yesterday, the U.S. crossed a new threshold, 163,402 new coronavirus cases per day, a dramatic increase from the previous day when the total was only 142,680. This may seem like ancient history, but the U.S. crossed the 100,000 mark only nine days ago. While the Wall Street Journal reported today that the S&P 500 rose to a new record as optimism over a COVID-19 vaccine raised hopes of an economic recovery next year, the devil is in the details. Yes, Pfizer and partner BioNTech claim that their vaccine is 90% effective, but they have not published information about the drug in peer-reviewed medical journals. The only information we have so far comes from a press release. There are also still many issues to be worked out regarding how to transport the vaccine, which will require extremely cold temperatures in order to be effective. In the meantime, we are all left in limbo in a world in which COVID-19 is raging, testing kits and PPE are in short supply, and government ceases to function as it waits for a new president to take office. No recent event summed up the frustration and futility of our current situation more than Elon Musk's attempts yesterday to determine whether he had in fact contracted COVID. Mr. Musk was tested four times with the same test, the same nurse, and the same testing machine, and he received two positive results and two negative results. Something extremely bogus is going on, he tweeted late Thursday. If it's happening to me, it's happening to others. 
Yes, Mr. Musk did take a rapid response test, which is not considered as accurate as a PCR or polymerase chain reaction test that typically involves a nasal or throat swab. But good luck tracking down one of these tests. As we discovered today, the wait is long if you are able to sign up for them at all. The Commerce Department said yesterday it will not enforce an order that would have effectively forced the Chinese-owned TikTok video sharing app to shut down, which was not entirely unpredictable given everything that's going on in this country between the election and the coronavirus. Back in early August, Donald Trump told reporters that he planned to ban the social media platform from the United States as soon as the following day owing to national security concerns about users' personal data. That didn't happen, but he did sign an executive order two weeks later requiring that the company be spun off from its Chinese parent, ByteDance, by November 12th, which, as we record this, was yesterday. Soon after he signed that order, ByteDance put together a plan to appease the administration that involved joining forces with Oracle and Walmart, and it submitted that plan, which Trump blessed, but the Chinese government did not. Although the thinking was that China might accept an arrangement in which Oracle managed TikTok's data while leaving the technology and operational control in ByteDance's hands. Anyway, over time in the U.S., the administration's clampdown has been undermined by a series of legal challenges from the social media app and its allies here, including some social media stars. And it's not exactly clear when the state of limbo will end, given the crackdown has been led by Donald Trump and that President-elect Joe Biden will probably have other things to prioritize at the start of his administration. That said, members of both parties have voiced concerns about potential data gathering by China-based companies, so we'll see. Up next, our interview with Mike Citrick, the famous guru who has helped an endless number of companies battle bad press. But first, a word from our sponsor. Did you know that 82% of small to medium-sized businesses fail due to poor cash flow management? Pluto is an all-in-one payments platform that gives small and medium-sized businesses greater financial control. You'll be able to focus on the fun parts of growing a business, while Pluto unifies payables, receivables, approvals, and reconciliations. With Pluto, you can give your business the right tools to keep moving forward at top speed. Enjoy flexible, automated workflows and online payments so you can focus on what matters most your business succeeding. Pay, get paid, and manage your finance operations from a single online tool. Visit pluto.com slash strictlyvc, that's p-l-o-o-t-o dot com slash strictlyvc, to learn more and start a free trial. That's pluto.com slash strictlyvc for your 30-day free trial signup. No credit card required. And now, our interview with Mike Citrick, one of the top crisis communication pros in the country, one whose clients have ranged from celebrities like Paris Hilton and Kanye West to Fortune 500 companies to a growing number of tech companies, though he tends not to like to discuss who he's working with while he's working with them. We'll just note that past clients include Theranos, the now-shuttered blood testing company, and Zenefits, the HR software company that famously had some dark days several years ago. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I, I think it's probably been about a year. Mike, for listeners who 
aren't familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about Citric? You're based in Los Angeles. I know that you've traditionally hired reporters to work for you. Tell me a little bit about how many people you're managing and what sorts of industries that you're helping. Well, I founded the firm 32 years ago, and I hired almost from the outset ex-journalists because I felt it was easier to teach a journalist what PR is than a PR person what news is. And what we do, whether it's dealing with the media or even internal communications, it's all about being able to tell a story and being able to determine what's news. One of the things I tell people who join my firm is that as a journalist, you're taught to ask who, what, when, where, why, and how. In our firm, we also ask, so what? Why should anybody care? Why does it matter? We deal in corporate financial transactional crisis and reputation, PR and management. And we have offices in Los Angeles, New York, uh, San Francisco, Boston, and Washington, D.C. I've got about 50 people and everybody's working remotely now. Nobody's in their offices. And I'm I'm happy to say we haven't laid anybody off. We're we're still busy. What is uh, one of your more recent claim to fame engagements with a client? Oh, that's a hard that's a hard choice to make, right? One of the more interesting cases is we were hired by the producer of Icarus, the film where they they disclosed how the Russians were getting away with doping during the Sochi Olympics, and they were afraid that the Russian government was going to order the assassination of the whistleblower, Dr. Gregory Rachenko. Uh, and I said, well, then you need to get your story out before the film is out. And they can kill him, but it'll be just for spite because the story will already be out. The client was on the phone and he said, well, why don't we do a press conference? And I said, nobody will come to a press conference. They've never heard of you. And even if they do, you don't have the credibility. And then they said, well, what about CNN? And I said, no, it's got to be print, something like the New York Times or Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. I have this theory about a lead steer that the media has a herd mentality And like any herd, they'll follow a lead steer in the New York Times. It qualifies, obviously, as a lead steer. You have something published prominently in the New York Times. Other media will pick it up. They agreed. We called the editor of the New York Times, told him about the story. And there were two page one stories that ran in media all over the world. Gregory Jankoff is now in a witness protection program. The film received an Academy Award and also sold for the highest price ever at that time for a documentary. The most important part, of course, is Ruchenkov is safe. That is fascinating. And what's so interesting to me about your work, Mike, is your range of clients, others who people probably want to kill as well, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. I had read in the New York Times in a profile of you in 2018 that you actually have security doors in your office. I mean, Because of your work with people who are often, you know, have a target on their back and have angry people after them, do you ever feel seriously endangered yourself? The reason we have a lockout on the elevator, believe it or not, is because unbeknownst to me, Breitbart was on the second floor of the building our office is in. There were some demonstrations outside the building and people kept coming up to my office and saying, is this Breitbart? And my receptionist would say, can't you read? This is Citric and Company. And we have people who work late 
And I don't want to put my people at risk that people could come into the building and get up in the elevator. That's why it's there. I'm, the, the Harvey Weinstein, we're actually working for the lawyers and they brought us in and they called me actually the day my mother died. This is after the first article published, the serious allegations hadn't surfaced. And I said, look, I can't handle this because I'm literally making arrangements to bury my mother, but I'll have one of my partners involved in it. So we got involved in that before things really blew up. And then we resigned, I'd say four months after that. Epstein, the one that everybody talks about, after he had served the house arrest or whatever he was in, there was a photograph in the New York Post of Prince Andrew and Epstein walking in Central Park. And by the way, I never met Epstein. And it was under the headline, The Prince and the Perv. And so we were brought in because there were literally hundreds of media calling because Prince Andrew was involved. So our job was to find out what the reporter was asking for, go to the lawyer and then find out if it was true or not. But we do high profile cases and we take sometimes controversial people. But we're all, in those cases, we're almost always part of the legal team. At what point do some of your controversial clients become bad for business? At what point do you realize that they might be turning off other potential clients? Well, look, my belief is you can't subjugate your client's interests for your own. And if you're going to be in the business, you need to be in the business. Uh, a lot of people wanted to know why we resigned from the Weinstein case. I don't comment on that. I believe you take it, you act like a professional. We did a case study for the graduate school of journalism at Columbia University. And it was a case with Food Lion where ABC had sent some reporters undercover as employees of Food Lion stores some years ago. And they had hidden cameras. And then they ended up publishing a 2020 report saying they were serving out-of-date meat and the floors were filthy and they had rat-gnawed cheese. And they'd closed 80, 90 stores. And they were suing for breach of loyalty because I think they were too late for defamation. Somehow they got outtakes. And the outtakes showed that they had set some of these things up and they had edited the interchanges in a way which changed what the individuals were saying. And so we made a tape of the making of the ABC 2020 Food Lion broadcast. Mm -hmm. And it shows this woman and a fry cooker, and she's got a hairnet on. And she says, I came in and I saw this. I had meat that was dated March 28th, and I put it in the fry cooker. And then the tape goes, and Diane Sawyer said, and they served out-of-date meat. But the rest of the tape, which was on the cutting room floor, said, but I knew it wasn't right. And so we would call journalists in who were covering the trial. And I remember I had one of my partners, the late Donna Walters, who was an assistant or deputy business editor of the LA Times, and she's a tough lady. And she would call these journalists in and poke them in the chest and say, my editor wouldn't let me do that. Would yours? I, well, I want to talk about these short sellers they've referenced, but I did want to say, Mike, I remember when we talked for a story that I wrote in TechCrunch in 2016, you had raised a, a similar example of where you suggest that you turned what sounded like a bad practice into a story about bad journalism. This was centering on Metabolife, a San Diego company that made ephedra-based dietary supplements that became a popular way for customers to lose weight 30 or so years ago. 
And one of your clients appeared, uh, maybe it was the CEO of a Metabolife on 2020. And I don't know if this predates or comes after the Food Lion story, but you were worried that the report would be slanted. So you suggested that they separately film all 90 minutes of the interview, which Metabolife did. And then you posted the footage on the internet weeks before the program was aired on national television and tried to diminish the impact of the story that way. And I bring this up because I have to say, it really reminded me of when Donald Trump recently sat down with Leslie Stahl and then decided to run outtakes of their interview ahead of 60 Minutes publication of the show. I, I wondered if he'd actually been advised by you or if it's possible that he was influenced by your previous work. No, I, I think I may in the sometime in the 90s worked for one of his casinos, and I think it was investor relations. I may have been involved in one of the bankruptcies. I can't remember. No, we, we did this first, but the main difference is streaming was at its infancy, right? My worry was, are we going to have enough bandwidth to have this stream? And I remember because we were really worried that we weren't going to get a fair hearing. We had said, look, there's all of this evidence out there showing that Metabolife is safe and effective when used as directed. So we were very concerned. And I said, look, if we're going to broadcast this, I want the complete unedited interview. I want to show the time clock on the video so people can see we didn't edit it because I don't want them to think we're spinning this. But the, the best part of that was I said, let's take a full page ad out in the New York Times and the ad said, see for the first time ever, a complete unedited 2020 interview. And we listed all of these, what we felt were journalistic and ethical infractions. And then before the ad ran, I called an editor at the Wall Street Journal and I said, I said, look, here's what we're doing. And he burst out laughing. And because I knew him, he said, why doesn't this surprise me? And then I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought, geez, you know what we should do? We should run an ad where people can vote on whether they thought the broadcast was fair. And we set up a website for that. Again, the, the purpose was to try to get them to show both sides. And the broadcast changed dramatically as a result of that. Well, you pioneered a lot of strategies that we're seeing today. I do have to say, though, in that case, wasn't Metabolife not soon after shown to be dangerous and to be fatal in some cases and so banned? Similarly, Harvey Weinstein was maybe a worse guy than you realized. Obviously, you're very good at what you do, but you're dealing with cases that are complicated. No, it was several years later where the founder was convicted of, I think, filing some false claims with the FDA or something. But this was several years later. I want to say five, six, seven years later. I'd have to look it up, but I know it was more than five years. I think the FDA banned it in 2004 following, I think what they said was evidence linked to strokes, heart attacks, and more than 150 that was, deaths. Yeah, five, that was five years after yeah, the fact. Yeah. Right. right, right. And you're not responsible, obviously, for what happens afterward. I just wonder if you've ever wrestled with the fact that you've maybe helped people or you can't do that kind of calculation because then it would render you completely ineffective in your work. You have to act on the facts that are available at the time, right? And so we dealt with the lawyers. Again, the lawyer they had was a former assistant U.S. attorney, and he did his due diligence. We looked at all of the material that we had. 
and we had, you know, support. This isn't material the client gave us. This is a material that one of my partners, who's a former city editor, investigative reporter, dug up on his own. So we had the, the stuff the lawyers gave us and the stuff that the client gave us, and we did our own due diligence. And at that point, there wasn't the issue, right? And then five years later, after the broadcast, then this came to light. Mike, I think you're best known for celebrity clients, Kanye West, Paris Hilton, Kelsey Grammer. But I think as recently as 2018, based on this Times profile of you, those celebrity clients made up about 10% of your client base and the rest is dealing with corporate crises. When you and I talked for a longer story two years before that, you were doing much more in tech as tech was taking center stage. So can you talk a little bit about maybe some of your recent clients and how you've helped them? I know that you had worked with Theranos, Zenefits, Jawbone, but those date back a few years. Is there anything more recent? Well, look, a lot of times we're in the background, right? I worked for eBay for a while. And in fact, John Donahoe was CEO of eBay at that time. Mm-hmm. I actually worked with Elon Musk in the early days of both Tesla and SpaceX, very early days. We've helped launch companies, worked with them on IPOs. Again, the, it's short selling is an issue with them. We help in terms of repositioning them. So we have a pretty broad spectrum of client representation in the Valley but a lot of times it's very much behind the scenes. From what I understand, you're compensated with an hourly fee and a success fee. Do you ever take equity stakes in companies? For example, would you ever have taken an equity stake in Theranos because you believe you, you would be able to turn that story around? We've considered that. and We have in rare cases. We were in Theranos trying to think how long, maybe a couple of months. And I, I really believe Elizabeth believed in the technology. It's much more newsworthy when people are writing about us to talk about the Theranoses than the companies we help to turn around and grow. And it's fine. I don't run from the people we represent, but the ones that are written about are very small. We have 250 active clients a year. So it's a very broad spectrum. Mike, I wanted to ask When you started off, obviously, the media landscape was very different. Like you said, you could plant something in the New York Times and everybody would pick it up. Now, obviously, things have changed. Everything's atomized. There are news organizations that are telling completely different stories. Social media is where a large percentage of people under a certain age get their news. How has your work changed as a result? How effectively can you manage a narrative and how do you stay on top of it so that it doesn't evolve in a way that is not what you had in mind? Well, I mean, the first thing is we have what we call a truth squad. These are people on the digital and social side and on the more traditional side. And they monitor the news for our clients. And if there is something that's inaccurate, we go back to the blogger or to the person making the posts or to the news organization and say, hey, this is inaccurate. Here's what's accurate. There are pluses and minuses, right? The plus is you can get your news out much faster and much broader. The minus is with so many people involved, you don't have the same rules. And I remember we got brought into a case where a very prominent person in the tech industry felt he'd been defamed and called me up and he said, look, we sued this guy and he said, fine, you can have all my assets. Come get the couch in my living room. And the guy probably spent a quarter of a million dollars on the lawsuit. So we contacted the person who had been doing this posting 
and were able to reason with him to take it down as opposed to continuing to threaten him. So that speaks a little bit to your lead steer theory of the media. Well, look, in my second book, I, I talk about that in a way, social media is a means to an end. And I give the example, if none of the major media, and I'm talking, you know, the old media, Washington Post, New York Times, LA Times, Wall Street Journal, Network News, CNN, right, MSNBC, whatever. If none of those media reported on what Donald Trump tweeted, how much impact would his tweets have, right? So it's a matter of something appears in Facebook, but does it have the same credibility that when that, if that post spread through what the more traditional media are, even if there is a, a segment of the population that no longer reads it? It's the opinion leaders and the opinion makers that give this the credibility because you can much more easily dismiss an article that appeared on Facebook. You mentioned Trump's tweets and how much power they've gained because the mainstream media has picked up on them and was covering them very closely, especially for the first three years of his administration. I feel like everybody sort of ran out of steam this year. But any advice for Joe Biden? I don't see Biden doing the same thing, which is a relief. I think a lot of us are exhausted from having to be aware of the president of the United States every hour of the day. At the same time, it was obviously a very effective strategy for him. Well, for a while, right. And, and, and again, to his base, he was kind of the person the media loved to hate, right? And there's a saying from the cartoon Pogo, we've met the enemy and it's us. The media created him. This is what's creating all of the attention. This is why he's out there every day. And so I think Biden is handling this very, very well. Mike, thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. I hope that you stay safe and well, and then we can catch up again in the not too distant future. You too. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. Bye.